Little House on the Prairie, which starred Bonanza's Michael Landon, was one of the most successful TV series in television history. But was life on the prairie as idyllic as the show gave off the impression it was? Buckle on up, as you are about to find out from Landon's TV wife herself, who played Ma, the show's other star. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on The Motivation Show is best known for having played one of TV's most beloved mothers, Ma, on the iconic TV show Little House on the Prairie, which also starred Michael Landon. That show aired for eight seasons on NBC as one of the most successful dramatic series in TV history. Her portrayal of Caroline Ingalls continues to inspire viewers all over the world, even 40 years later. However, life is not always what it seems on the prairie. And in her new book, she reveals many of the surprising and never before told details of what really happened on the little house on the prairie set. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Karen Gosley. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up and set the stage for your career in show business. Did you know from an early age, Karen, that you wanted to be an actor on TV? Oh, no, no, I had no no clue. I was attracted to performing from the time I was little, you know, in school plays and dancing lessons. Uh, dancing lessons were a big part of my sisters and my growing up, but you just didn't grow up and become a performer coming from my family. You know, my parents were very hardworking people who had survived the depression, had been through a lot of hard knocks, and they wanted us to get an education and get a secure life. So, you know, they would have been very happy if I had said, I just want to be a school teacher. In fact, when I finally said, you know, I've got to be an actress and I'm going to drop out of college. <laughs> and go to San Francisco to pursue this, my mother went to bed crying. Wow, that is very interesting. Now, why did you feel that you had to be an actress? Were you an introvert, an extrovert? What is it that got you to muster up the courage to perform, knowing that millions of people, you know, might be watching and judging you? Well, I've always been a mixture of introvert and extrovert. And so satisfying myself has always been a little bit of a balancing act, giving myself enough solitude so that I can recharge and giving myself enough stimulation with other people so that I feel alive, you know. When I began, I had no thought of being on a television show where millions of people would watch me. I hoped that I could be in a theater company 
where I would be able to play lots of different kinds of parts, uh, classical and avant-garde, modern, and um, have lots of challenges and be transforming from all different kinds of characters. That was my goal. Well, you certainly succeeded. I can tell you that. So, you know, outsiders, uh, Karen, that probably saw you succeed as such a famous TV character would probably easily conclude that you reached a pinnacle of success in your career. And uh, at the time, did you feel that you reached a pinnacle of success in that role? No, I was very grateful to have such a good job. I knew that I had one of the plum jobs for a woman in Hollywood at that time, but it was not my goal, my dream. You know, my dream was to play lots of different parts to do Shakespeare every year, et cetera. Uh, so even though I was in this situation that was very lucky, uh, I was also dissatisfied. <laughs> yeah, and the what's next syndrome, right? <laughs> Did that conquer that? What's next, right? There's plenty more life to live. And what uh, do you feel prevented you or held you back from perhaps achieving some of the other things maybe you want to have had on your plate? Nothing. Nothing at all, huh? That's good. <laughs> I mean, um, I, have, I, I just haven't quit. There you go. This is the thing about that I realized when I read this book that I wrote, I'm like, oh my goodness, this gal never quits. I mean, she might have to change direction she might have to learn new skills. She might have to change her environment, but she never quits. It's quite stunning. So that's why I say nothing stopped me because of course my, my personality, which could be quite uh, sensitive, oversensitive and difficult, stopped me. My alcoholism stopped me. My um, fear uh, of not succeeding stopped me. Uh, many things were obstacles that made my life difficult, but I just didn't quit. <laughs> well, that is a great lesson in life. You know, there's lots of things that are going to get in your way. And the question is, do you quit? Or do you just move on despite it all? And, you know, I talk about fear a lot, and I believe everybody's got some level of fear. Many of us just never even understand that it's lurking subconsciously to prevent us from, you know, achieving some of the great things in life. But uh, I think the great lesson out of all this is just never, never quit. You know, just you know, no matter how many, like Muhammad Ali is you, uh, one of his famous quotes. He, it's not how many times you get knocked down on the canvas. It's how many times you're willing to get up. That really counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's sort of an astonishing thing for me to discover as I reflect back, you know. And um, I think writing this book has been a very healing experience for me because it's shown me things about myself that perhaps I knew, but not as consciously as I do now. And um, it's meant very much to me that uh, it's out there in the world now because I have learned how much Ma meant to people. I had no idea. 
I had no idea that when I was going to work and maybe feeling depressed because Michael wasn't giving me a raise and he was cutting me out of scenes and I was working hard to keep showing up and keep doing good work. I had no idea that this character was imprinting herself on people's hearts. And as a result of doing this book, all these people have told me what Ma meant to them. And I feel so touched by that, you know, because there were many times when I did not feel like going to work. <laughs> well, you know, let's let the cat out of the bag and let people know the name of this great book. It's called Bright Lights, Prairie Dust, which is a very, you know, metaphoric title. Tell me about that title. Well, it's all symbolic, of course. Uh, for me, Bright Lights has to do with when you're on stage and the lights are coming toward you, you are in the glow of those lights, but you cannot see the audience. So there's a kind of magical quality to it, that you're in your own imaginary world. And then prairie dust is both symbolic and, and physical, because when we were working out there, in Simi Valley on the ranch, there was this dust there that was so fine that it would go into your pores. So when I would get home from there, I would have to, you know, scrub and bathe to get that dust off. And also because of the idea of something having a residue. So I had a residue from some of the tough times on the show and the disappointments related to the show. And that's what it refers to. Well, I think it's fascinating what you said just prior that here you are in this incredible role, you're impacting billions, but at the time you don't realize you are because you're focused on the muck <laughs> that you're in the middle of at the moment, not realizing that, you know, there may be even people's lives that you're saving people who are, you know, and, and, really bad states and they come on, they tune into your show and you uplift them and inspire them, give them something to, to look forward to. Now, years later, you know, through putting your book out and all the people that are responding, you get to see it really did make a difference. And I guess that's it's a great thing for all of us to learn that maybe we're making a bigger difference and we sometimes give ourselves credit for, right? Yes, I think so. I think we we show up, you know, do the work and we have to turn over what the results are and hope that it's for the good. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, what do you hope that people end up learning and taking away from your book? Well, just I think what we've been talking about, you know, that I had a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity, and a lot of heartbreak. And I was able to keep going. I didn't die. I didn't kill myself. I had suicidal ideation at different times in my life, but I kept seeking help. I kept seeking a way out. I believed that life was meant to be better, mm. and that it could be good. And I had a, this kind of faith, I guess, that life would work out. No, uh, but that's a great word, faith. You know, keep believing, keep having faith. 
uh, there, there will be light in the end of the tunnel. And if you keep searching for it, so if you have the faith and you keep searching, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel will eventually appear. I love that. Thanks for yeah, sharing that. that. Yeah, I think that there was some place deep inside that kept believing, even as dark, dark, dark as my thoughts got sometimes. So you do allude to the fact that uh, you know, your relationship with your father uh, was a bit challenging. And how did his alcoholism uh, affect you personally and professionally when you became an adult? Well, I was crazy about my father. He was an absolutely marvelous man. Everyone loved him. He was kind. He looked out for other people. He had a great sense of humor, but he was alcoholic and he could change personality in a flash. And he could say the most cutting things so that my confidence would be undercut and I would be confused by these changes in him. And that built a kind of uh, adult child of an alcoholic personality that was both a perfectionist and uh, my own worst critic. It was difficult. So your dream was to become a stage actress on Broadway. You, you mentioned that, and you dedicated an awful lot of time uh, and effort in that pursuit. And the role of, you know, Ma just uh, came up at a pretty crucial time in your life. What was it like to make that move from stage to screen? First of all, I was just very, very lucky to get a job. You know, I was ready to give up acting and go back to school. And so I was thrilled to get the part. And I really never wanted to be on a TV series. I never had that as a goal, but I was like, come on, Karen, you get to stay in show business. So take the job. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot to learn because while, although I had done television in New York, I had never done film on location which is what we were doing. What we, what we were doing was more the way you make a movie than the way you do a soap opera, for example. So I had a lot to learn about what those skills are and at the same time, learn the part and at the same time, work those hours. So when we were on location doing this, very often at night, I would be practicing my lines by writing them out on a yellow pad so that I could check to make sure they were right. And I would fall asleep with that stuff in my hand because I was so tired. Yeah. So you worked on stages and sets decades before this so-called Me Too era that we're in today. And I'm sure the world was a lot different back then. And maybe people didn't come out and speak out about it. Uh, but uh, today's a new, new, new day dawning, you know, and uh, women are coming out and talking. Tell us what your experiences were like with sexism in the workplace back in those days. Well, first of all, I just want to say how proud I am of these young women who have come forward at great cost to themselves and their careers to confront these issues. I just think it's fantastic. Amen. And yeah, more power to them and to all of us. In my own case, I was very fortunate because by the time I got to New York, I had already been 
an apprentice at a rep company. I had been a Fulbright to London. I had been in leading roles at another rep company. So when I got to New York, I wasn't a wide-eyed teenager with no experience who was subject to all kinds of manipulation. I was already a professional with a resume and that saved me, I think, because people had to take me seriously. And I knew somehow, I don't know from my mother or how, I knew how to glance off of certain kinds of come-ons as if they just hadn't happened or as if they were a joke and moved through situations that could have been very troubling without a mark on me. And I don't know how I had those instincts. Maybe it was just that I was a little older, but I'm very grateful for it. However, on Little House on the Prairie, when I was surrounded by a cowboy's man's world, uh, where uh, I would say the ratio of men to women there was about 90 to one. That's a big uh, ratio. Yeah. <laughs> and the language that all these guys shared, you know, about the game on Monday morning. And I can just imagine. All that, that I didn't know anything about. So I was, I was very much uh, on my own in that situation, except when the other supporting actors were there. Because the children, they, they weren't caught in that same adult world, you know. So when I asked Mike for a raise, then he turned on me and he started to take advantage of the fact that I was female, that I was in this somewhat hostile circumstance and made life very, very unpleasant for me for quite a long time, trying to get me just to give up. But I wouldn't give up. I don't know how I got the guts to hang in there. But my attorney said, just go to work, do your job. And I tried to keep my head up high, you know, and do a good job. And it was really tough for a while. Well, you know, I grew up uh, watching uh, Bonanza and Little Joe. And, you know, you look at Little Joe Cartwright and you you think that uh, he's, first of all, I mean, he's he's got matinee idol looks and he's just, uh, you know, all American uh, looking kind of guy. He's got the great smile and of course, that's on TV, but not, not everything on TV is exactly the way it is on real life. I've certainly met enough celebrities off stage to see a little different, you know, twist. So uh, uh, how was uh, he different on stage versus, again, besides your contract negotiations? Uh, what ended up happening at the end of the day? You know, the artistic personality anyway can be changeable. And that goes without saying. And obviously, Michael Landon was not going to be charming little Joe all the time. I mean, he had a show to put together and he had full responsibility. Lots of it. pressures. Yep. So, yeah, you're not always. And, the... I, and <laughs> yeah. I really try to make that very clear in the book, how much pressure was on Mike. But that still doesn't excuse him treating me uh, poorly. So he tried to demean 
the character of Carolyn. He tried to say I should be paid the same as the children. He took me out of certain scenes. He cut around me when he didn't want me to get camera focus. At one point in the book, I say, well, Ma became the incredible shrinking woman. So all that was mightily unpleasant. But the worst of it was when he started cracking these really filthy, filthy jokes. When we are sitting in the bed, in the little house, with men standing all around, and he's making these jokes about the female anatomy. I mean, that was over the top. And you couldn't get away with that today. Oh, no. You'd be out in five seconds, that's for sure. So you've definitely uh, had some challenges on the set. Uh, Any other uh, great challenges and any other great rewards of working on Little House on the Prairie? Many great rewards. I mean, all those supporting actors were such marvelous people, and I made really good friendships, in particular with Scotty McGregor and also with Carl Swenson, who played the Miller. Just wonderful people. Kevin Hagen, who played the doctor. I just, oh God, Dabs Greer, our reverend. I mean, these were wonderful, wonderful people and superb actors. So I was blessed to to be among them and uh, work alongside them and have their friendship. It was really, really special. And now, you know, these kids have grown up into marvelous, marvelous adults. So I have a whole new parcel of friends that were just little kids when we first worked together. So that's pretty amazing too. I was able to send the book out to a large number of the cast and they gave me marvelous quotes for the book. They were so supportive. You know, that's pretty great. Well, I actually saw a couple of really good quotes for your book uh, for some very well-known people. Uh, One of them says, Karen Grassley's memoir, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust, struck me in the deepest heart. It's raw. It's poignant. It's 100% authentic portrait of the real woman who will always be my ma. Thanks to this book, so many of our fans of our show will get to know her too, for Melissa Gilbert, of course. That's very sweet. Well, remarkable. Yeah, I'm so grateful to her. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about uh, moving into season two, about, uh, you know, what what happened then with your contract negotiations and how that all just sort of went from there. How did it change the way you viewed everything, and including yourself and, uh, and everyone on set? Well, that was really, really hard on me because I felt like I was the odd man out, you know, like the the chicken who's being pecked. And um, it was very alienating. And what that did was that contributed tremendously to my feeling uh, like a victim and uh, to my alcoholism. Because I could justify, you know, well, you'd drink too if this was happening to you. Mm. And uh, feel sorry for myself, you know, and be angry and resentful. And um, that's not a healthy way to live. <laughs> so you were able, you justified the drinking. Did you deny that you were drinking or you just justified the rationale behind the drinking? I didn't deny I was drinking, but I 
would say, well, you know, you'd drink too if you had these problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd rationalize, make excuses for myself. What finally got you past that and the well, depression? It was a combination of things. One was that I, I sought psychiatric help and the psychiatrist was beginning to focus on the physical aspects of my mood swings. And then I was confronted by my oldest, dearest friend who said, Karen, I believe you're an alcoholic and you need to do something about it. And then I had one more bad, bad night where I fought with a dear friend and cried and carried on about my life and what a big mess it was. And the next morning I just woke up and I had that moment of clarity where I said, that is it. I must never take another drink as long as I live, no matter what else happens. And I really thought I might lose my job. I might lose my boyfriend. I might never be able to go out to a restaurant again. I certainly wouldn't be able to have Mexican food because I wouldn't be able to have a beer with it. That's what I thought it would be. Wow, I thought yeah. it was going to be this long, dry, difficult road, horrible, but I was willing to go down that road. And of course, it's nothing like that. Yes. Thank, I have thank, a happy life now. <laughs> thank goodness. Yes. Well, you're a great inspiration for others who uh, I'm sure are in the same boat and need to learn from you and uh, need to find a way out of that. So let's move on. Uh, you know, you've co-wrote and you've starred in the TV film Battered, uh, which uh, which is pretty fascinating as well, which you produced after years of, uh, you know, working on that. And so tell us a little bit about that and what it stands for and what you're looking for people to learn from that. Um, before we made that film, I thought that wife beating was something that was isolated to only the uneducated or only the poor. And that was a general prejudice that existed at the time. But I had been exposed by this uh, journalist in Fort Worth to a series of articles that exposed what the problem really is and how it cut across all class lines, all races, all religions. And so my friend Cynthia Lovelace Sears and I decided that we would write a movie of the week on this subject that would show that and lay it open for the American public. And that's what we did. And the film had a tremendous uh, impact um, not only on people who watched it, but also there was a um, police department in New York that took it as a training film to help the police get through those domestic dispute calls safely. And one of the other actresses and I were able to go and lobby in Washington, D.C. for funding that would help shelters all over the country to get established. So we felt like we were really making a difference. And that was so satisfying. Well, it seems to me that you've had the triple crown in making a difference. You know, you played Ma, you did this uh, wonderful film, Battered, and you've uh, now written Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. That's pretty good. Anything else, uh, any other accomplishments you're proud of that I don't know <laughs> about besides those, the triple crown? 
<laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I have a son I'm very proud of. <laughs> that's a great accomplishment. That's probably the best of them all, right? It is. Yes, that's wonderful. So uh, what's next for Karen Grassley? What should we uh, wait for uh, with bated breath? Well, I have an idea about doing a series of stories that are all these kind of backstage, behind the scenes stories uh, and collect them, but to mm, fictionalize it so you can put in the brutal truth. One last question I want to ask you. So there are lots of people out there right now. They are struggling. They have alcoholism. They have depression. Uh, they have lack of self-esteem, lack of self-worth. They have lack of everything. What do you recommend that they do? Do you have uh, several steps that you would tell somebody to definitely move towards? Well, we all need help. No man is an island. And if you don't find the help at the first place you look, then look in the next place and the next place. Because it's not a shame to need help. Mm. I've needed all the help I could get, <laughs> I can tell you. I think that was a big word that uh, don't look at as a shame, because if you do, you, you'll never seek the help. Yeah, um, we're all just human. Yep, that's it. We're all human, you know, just uh, trying to figure it all out as we go along the path, right? Nobody was born with uh, a manual or instructions. So anything else you want to share with the world, Karen? Oh, I think we've pretty well covered the waterfront. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've... Uh, it's definitely covered a lot of great things. You've been a great inspiration. You're a great inspiration for me as well. And I'm sure you're a role model for millions. And uh, uh, I think uh, if uh, I was a uh, audience member listening right now to this show, uh, I couldn't put your book down, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. And uh, I want to get through the whole book and probably read it a second time. So thank you so much for coming on our show today. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.